And if you remember now, we started last week, we come into the book of Hebrews. And I told you how the book of Hebrews has really a, a, always been portrayed as one of the hardest books in the Bible. And now that we have been through that, you have a better understanding, I would hope, how that it's not the hardest book in the Bible, but if you just follow the basic systematic way that God lays the Bible out, it becomes a very understandable book of the Bible. And it becomes a book that is, is easy to put together. And uh, we, we began to show you how that when we entered Hebrews, we entered into another section in our Bible. Usually the books from Hebrews to the end of the Bible are called the general epistles. They're called the general epistles because they're not aimed at anybody directly. Where 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you know, 1 Thessalonians and those places are aimed at churches. Then you have 1 and 2 Timothy, Philemon and Titus that are aimed at people. The book of Hebrews on aren't really specifically addressed to, I mean Hebrews is, uh, but the rest of them are, have the names of the apostles that wrote them. So they're given the designation as the general epistles. But there ain't nothing general about them when you study them because they are incredible books and you're going to see that. Last week when we saw the book of Hebrews, we talked about a ha Hebrews with a transitional book. And I'm going to tell you again what transitional deals with. It deals with the aspect of coming from one place to another in time through your Bible where God is changing and doing things differently. And these books, James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd and 3rd John and the book of Jude, deal directly with the nation of Israel. And I told you that uh, when we studied the book of Hebrews. They deal with Israel going through the coming suffering and enduring of the tribulation period as they go through uh, that great time called Daniel's 70th week that is laid out in the Bible so many different places. Now part of the process here, is, and I talked about this last week, uh, is I want to show you how to use these books of the Bible. Remember I told you last week that you have to have a context. When you're going to read the Bible, one of the things that you've got to remember is you've got to establish a context of subject matter. Who's he writing this to? And I told you last week that, uh, um, that there are three groups of people addressed in the Bible. You have the Gentiles, you have the nation of Israel, and then you have you and I, the body of Christ. It is absolutely crucial, and that's why all of my teaching, one-on-one -on -one or however we do it, will always come back, and I don't know how many times I'm working with somebody and they will ask me a question about the Bible, or it'll be on a Thursday night, and my question back to them will be, what's the context? Stop and look what the context is, because that's how you learn. Your first thing you have got to train yourself to do when you open up a book of the Bible, when you go to a passage in the Bible, in a particular book, first thing you've got to train yourself to do is to ask yourself the question, who is this book written to? And of course, that's why every book of the Bible as we have come through, I have told you at the beginning of each book, and if you're following this along, you should be writing these in somewhere, that I'm giving you an understandable little paragraph of this basically says this is what this book's about. So when you come through your own reading and you start to read Matthew, Mark, Isaiah, Jeremiah, you should have up there before you start to read it, rephrase that little paragraph in your mind and say, okay, this is what this is about, so this is what I'm going to look for. And that's how you learn to use the book, by context. Now, uh, look at James chapter 1. Now here's another one. Last week I told you 
it was the, uh, the book of Hebrews is written to Hebrews. And you cannot take that book and directly and apply it to you and I. And I showed you how that is. Now look at James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Then James is not written directly to you and I either. James is written to 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. Those 12 tribes are the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Israel, I don't know how much you know about history, but let me help you through this thing. Israel is scattered two times in your Bible and two times through history. The first time they are scattered is 606 B.C. We studied it when we came through the times of the Gentiles. And we saw that Israel is scattered and dispersed from Jerusalem in 606 B.C. And she's, she's, she's scattered by a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon. And you remember I told you that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is one of the men in the Old Testament that is a type of the Antichrist. He is a picture, historically, of what is going to happen in the future. The next time that Israel is going to get scattered will be any time in the next few years when the Lord comes back, the Antichrist himself is going to go after them and scatter them. We saw that when we studied the book of Revelation in Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 13. And the definitive chapter on that, if you remember from our Thursday night times on Thursday night Bible study, was Matthew chapter 24. But there's many places in the Bible that deal with it. Isaiah 22, Daniel 11, uh, Daniel 8, many of those kind of places. Now, uh, when you come to the book of James, now here, here's the here's definitive of this book. You want to get this someplace in your Bible. You want to remember this about the book of James. The book of James, the theme of the book of James is very simple. And I'm telling you something else. When you learn what the themes are of these books of the Bible, and I give them to you very basically so anybody can understand them, because that's the way I am. I have to break things down for me that I understand them, and it helps other people do it the same way. The theme of the book of James is simple. It is, the theme is the trying of your faith through tribulation worketh patience. Now that's all that it's about. If you get that concept down somewhere in the front of your Bible, in the front of James, every time you read it, that's what you want to remember because everything in that book is going to be built around that one simple theme. The trying of your faith through tribulation will work patience. Now, I told you last week that not all of the Bible is written to you directly as a Christian. Much of the Bible is written to somebody else, but there's things that we can learn about it. Remember that? And then I told you the key to understanding where you can apply things directly and where you can't. And I'm going to go over it again because a lot of new people here, and yet the price of learning is repetition. And I'm going to keep re-emphasizing this in everything that we talk about. And I told you that when you have your Bible in the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which brings you from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Then you have a book called the book of Acts, the next book, which brings you from the nation of Israel into the church age. Then you have a series of books where Paul writes to seven churches and three individuals. It'll be from Romans to Philemon. In those books, Paul, who is the apostle to the Gentile church, 
gives us everything directly that we need to know about our faith, our life with Christ, how we're to function, everything a New Testament child of God needs in those books, Romans to Philemon, is written directly to you. Anything in there, you can grab that and put it right between your eyes because it is written directly to you. In Matthew, you got to be careful. Mark, Luke, and John, you got to be careful. It's written not directly to you. It's written to the nation of Israel, but it's for you. And you learn things about history, God, nation of Israel, all important things you need to know. But you don't find out how to go to heaven in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you try to take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and find a way to go to heaven, you're going to wind up going to hell because this plan of salvation is not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know why right now as we're speaking this morning there's a bunch of churches out there that are guys are getting up and saying you've got to be baptized to go to heaven and you've got to be baptized in this to go to heaven and they teach salvation by baptism is because they take their salvation plan not from Romans to Philemon. They take their salvation plan out of Matthew and Acts. And that wasn't written directly to you. They are transitional books. You need to know that. There's stuff in there that is for you but it's not directly to you. And of course, when you get into Romans to Philemon, then you're on safe ground. When you get into Hebrews to the end of the book of Jude, again, you're in a transition that is going out of the church age into the tribulation period, so you're going to find those books have a Jewish slant written to the nation of Israel. Hence the first book, Hebrews. Second book, James and the twelve tribes that are scattered. Now, I know some of us are scattered brain, but none of us are scattered this morning. That is written directly to the nation of Israel. So, how do I do that? How do I find a book in the Bible and I find what it's saying and it looks like some of this applies to me directly and some of it doesn't? And I've told you this before. The key is the books that Paul writes. There's lots of things in James, First and Second Peter, Matthew, and some things in Hebrews that line up with what Paul says. It's real simple, guys. When it lines up with what Paul says, then it applies to you. When it doesn't line up to what Paul says, then look to apply it someplace else. Can you see that? It's not hard. The definitive books for you and for me as a New Testament Christian is what Paul writes. So when I come into the book of Hebrews and I see somebody being told contrary to what Paul told me, I know it's not to me. It's to the nation of Israel. When I read in the book of James something that he says to the 12 tribes that lines up with me, then I know that I can apply it. Now, I know that that sounds complicated, but let me just assure you of this. I will do all of my within my power to help you understand this because it is paramount to getting the Bible down. And I don't care where you're at. I told you, you know, Thursday night that a good, healthy church has all kinds of people in it. All kinds of people in different levels of spiritual growth. Some don't know anything. Some just got saved. Some are well on their way. Some are really into the Bible. Some are intermediate where they're learning. That's what you want in a healthy church because it's all a family and everybody's at great different spiritual levels. And that's what makes it so exciting because I'm telling you, I will do whatever it takes in your life if you're willing to help you get all these things down. And you're going to see throughout the morning this morning how it all works. Now, let me give you an example. All right, I told you that the book of James 
uh, the theme of it is the trying of your faith through tribulation worketh patience. Okay? Now, you see what? Turn over to Romans chapter 5 for just a moment. I'm not going to have you turn a lot of places today because I want you to listen, but here's one I want you to look at. Romans chapter 5. And if there's somebody new Christian around you, help them find Romans 5. I still have a tough time finding some of the books in the Bible. I'm still looking for Hezekiah. Now, Romans chapter 5, look in verse 3. Now, this is Paul writing to the church. I want, I'm taking some time with this part because it doesn't do me any good to blow through the book of James and show you all what I know about it if you don't understand it. So we're taking some time to work through this. These are major things. And you took the time to come today. I'm going to take the time to help you leave with something today. Now, here's what it says in Romans 5, 3. And not, and not only so but we glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. Now, there it is, you see? In other words, the concept of going through tough times of tribulations, the principles fit to Israel going through the tribulation period and learning patience, and what you and I have to go through in life every day. You see, we may not go through the great tribulation that Israel's going to go through, but you know and I know as well as anybody that if you're going to stand for God and you're going to pay the price to serve God, there's going to be some tough times in your life. The devil's not going to make it easy for you. Well, just as you go through your tribulation period on a smaller scale and Israel goes through the great tribulation on a global scale, the principles are the same. And that's why a, a great example of how something written to the 12 tribes Patience through tribulation also applies directly to us. Why? Because you'll find it in the first book that Paul writes, the book of Romans, and other books too. So I want you to keep that in mind this morning as we start to come through. Because you're going to begin to see that much of James does line up with the Pauline writings. Some of it doesn't. And I will show you as best of I can today in the time we have what does and what doesn't. But the book of James teaches one of the basic concepts that the book of Romans teaches. And that is that you and I get stronger through adversity. You and I get stronger through adversity. God allows trials and tribulations to come into our lives to build us. And you're going to see that as we come through. He uses it to build the nation of Israel as a nation. He will use it in your life and my life on an individual scale to build it. That's why, you know what? There's tough times for all of us as a child of God. And that's why God wants to teach you the Bible that you learn how to deal with adversity, uh, that you grow through the adversity, and uh, the problems in life will help you turn to God or turn from God, one or the other. And, of course, uh, that's just the way it is. Now, let me give you another thing you'll want to get about this book. Let me give you the outline of the book of James. It's very important. It's real easy. Chapter 1 through chapter 3 shows faith shown outwardly as you face tribulation. All right, it, chapter 1 through chapter 3 shows your faith and my faith that is shown outwardly by what we do, by what we say, as you and I face the tribulations of life. And the emphasis in chapter 1 through chapter 3 is going to be on our works and what we say. You find you're going to find the word works 13 times. All right, chapter 4 and chapter 5, it is faith shown inwardly as we face tribulation. And the emphasis here is going to be on humility 
and prayer. And you're going to find the word faith in these two chapters 12 times. Now, it's real easy. Chapter 1 through chapter 3 is your faith and my faith. When I go through a tribulation period, outwardly being shown by what I do and what I say. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 is the faith that I have in Christ shown inwardly as I go through the struggles of life. And the emphasis there is going to be on my humility and my prayer. And that is basically how the book breaks down. Now, again, before we go any farther in this little book, remember first and foremost, this is written to the 12 Jewish tribes of the nation of Israel that are scattered. Here's the background. Israel is in the tribulation period and they're scattered. They're trying to survive the pursuit of the Antichrist. And they are trying to find God in the process. Last week we saw the book of Hebrews that really defines to the nation of Israel who Christ is and all the things between the Old Testament and the New Testament and how they are better. The things in the New Testament are better than things in the Old Testament. And we saw that and now in this book it shows them as they're struggling to survive. It shows them how to have patience to wait through this tribulation period for God to come and save them. God has to get them to understand that God has a timetable. And that God says that while you're going through this tribulation on planet earth, and all this is detailed out for you in Matthew chapter 24. I'm taking you the easy route. And of course we've been through Matthew 24 on our, on our studies on Thursday night. But all this takes place as Israel's going through the tribulation period. And God is showing them how to be patient. That God has a timetable and that God is doing something. And in time, God will fulfill those promises that God gave to the nation of Israel. You want to remember that. At the same time, He's saying directly or indirectly to me. You know what, Bob? In life on planet earth, there's going to be trials and tribulations. There's going to be things that you're going to have to go through. There's going to be things that you're going to have to deal with. And Bob, you need to understand that there's some things that I want you to learn from that. And Bob, I also understand this. I have a timetable. I'm doing something in your life. And you're going to see it when we get into chapter 1. And he's saying, the bottom line is, Bob, I gave you some promises, and those promises will come to pass because they are true. Don't get discouraged because of what you're going through. The promises of God will get you through your own personal tribulation, whatever you're going through, just like it'll get Israel through there. See how it works? It's real simple, real easy. So chapter by chapter now, let's come through and look at this, and let's make some great uh, see some great concepts and make the applications <coughs> as best we can. Let's pray. Father, <coughs> we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. I love you today. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for those that have you brought here today. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'll just give us wisdom and insight into all that's said and done. And Lord, we just love you. And we thank you, Father, for uh, the Word of God that you've given us, for its power, for its strength, for its truth. We pray now, Lord, that in everything that's said and done, you'll have the honor and glory. Help us to leave today understanding your word a little better. Thank you for all the new host of people that uh, you've had saved over the last couple of weeks. Pray, Father, that as we uh, look at our own time of baptismal in a couple of weeks, that they'll see the need, uh, Lord, to follow you in obedience to baptism. 
that we may be able to work into their life and to show them the principles of the Word of God and to disciple them, to work with them, to help them any way that we can. Let them know this church cares for them, we love them, and all we want from them, all that we care about from them is the fact that they learn your Word, that they may, in this last, these last days, have a little piece of your mission that we may accomplish together through this church. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, chapter 1 <coughs> teaches three great concepts, and we want to come through these. Look at chapter James chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ of the twelve tribes, which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting in nothing. Now, chapter 1 lays out two types of temptation that are talked about in the Bible. Now, this is one of your great so-called contradictions in your Bible. How many times I've heard men that had an axe to grind against God and hated the Bible always threw this up. Now, what they're saying is here is James chapter 1, uh, uh, verse 3, uh, verse 13 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, because it goes on to say that God doesn't tempt any man. But when you go back to Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, the Bible says, And God did tempt Abraham. See the contradiction? One place says God didn't tempt a man. The other place said God did tempt Abraham. Now somebody that wants to discredit the Bible and find mistakes in the Bible, that doesn't want to study to show their self-approve, there you are. You want to prove the Bible's wrong? Help yourself. You want to study to come through the Scriptures? You'll find there's a great teaching here, and that great teaching is there's two kinds of temptations in the Bible. Two kinds of temptations in the Bible. In fact, when you come down through here, he says in verse 3, chapter 1, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. When you go over to, uh, back to Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, where it says, God did tempt Abraham, and then you turn back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, uh, and see the same account, it'll say in Hebrews eleven seventeen, by faith Abraham, when he was tried, two kinds of temptation. Let me tell you something as a child of God. God will try you with the things that you love. He will. That's just a true statement. Now, when you first get saved, obviously, God is not going to down. God is not the author of confusion. Uh, God gives you a free pass for a while. You learn that in the Old Testament. You realize when the children of Israel come out of Egypt, that God, if you study the path that they go, God, they just came out of Egypt. And they went around in a big old circle for quite a while. And they just went around in a big old circle for a long time before God let them meet the first adversity that they had to face. You know why? Because God knew that young Christians aren't ready to face a lot of adversity. Now that's why God puts you in a church. You know what? You may get saved on Thursday night or Sunday morning and, or, and, and the next Friday your world fall out from underneath of you. That's why God gave you church. God didn't expect you to deal with it all by yourself. It's why God gave you a pastor. It's why God gave you Christian friends. There are people at this point in your life who know more about the Bible than you do. Now, that won't be that way forever. You'll move right along, you'll grow up, and you'll learn how to figure it out too. But right now, that maybe if you just got saved or whatever, there's people around you who know more about it than you do. 
They're not going to hold it over you and, and, and say, wow, look how smart I am. No, they're going to use that to help you deal through your struggles and problems. And as you grow up, you'll learn how to handle them yourself. But God's not going to throw you a, a monkey wrench the day after you get saved. And God, it, it, the devil may, but God's not. And God let the children of Israel wander around there for a while before they met their first adversary. You know why? Because he was giving them some time to get their feet on the ground. And when you get saved, God puts you in a church. Now, maybe you don't recognize that, but I'm telling you, that's what you've got to recognize. We're here for your survival. This old world out here is like a raging sea, and this little church is like a lifeboat. And we are all in the same boat. And we all are trying to survive. I am not the captain of that boat. The Lord Jesus Christ is the captain of that boat. You know what? We're all in the same mess. And that's why we all have to help each other. Don't ever look at me as somebody that you think I'm way up here that I can't be down here where you're at. You know what? I, I, I don't, I, I'm going to say this. I don't want to say it, but I'm going to say it. Because you need to understand it. We're Bubba. Bubba, Jared, now, uh, don't take this wrong. I, I, it's going to sound wrong, but don't take it wrong. You ever had a pastor in your life come over and help you move from 4 o'clock to midnight in all your life? How many people have I helped move? Too many. I'll tell you right now. <laughs> Too many. And we got a bunch more to move. You're going to be there for four years. We decided that the other night. Now, you know what? I'm not saying that to say anything great about me because I put my pants on just like everybody else. But I am saying it to say this. You know what? You know why I do that? Other than the fact that I love you more than life itself. You know why I do that? Because I ain't any better than you. And I up here, I mean, you shot somebody up here, you know, well, I'm your pastor and you come to hear me preach, but when you get in a jam, I ain't going to be there. That stinks. We are in this together. That's the way it has to be. I am no better than you. I will never ask you to do anything that I'm not willing to do myself. Now, that doesn't make me great. That makes me just an old, rotten, filthy sinner just like you are. But we're in this boat together. And when you have a need, it has to be my need. And when you hurt, it has to be my hurt. And when I'm broke, you need to lend me five bucks. That's how it works. Hey, you know what? We're in this thing together. I'm not any better than you. And I didn't tell you that so I can say everybody will go home and say, oh, he's such a great guy. No, I'm not. If you knew what I knew about me, you wouldn't even come and preach this morning. And if I knew what you knew about you, I wouldn't even preach to you this morning. <laughs> We're all in the same mess. We're in this sea of life trying to survive. You don't need a pastor that can't be there when you're drowning. I would expect you to pull me out of the sea if I was drowning just like I'm supposed to pull you out. We're in it together. How are we ever going to accomplish anything without that mindset? We've got to help each other. We've got to be there for each other. And after we get these next people moved, we're going to put a decree in our bylaws, if we have any bylaws, that nobody moves for another year. Amen. Jan bought a trailer back there, and he ain't got to use it since he bought it. 
and I'm tired of eating the same old hard pizza. Get something different. I mean, I got to help you, and I got to help you move, but come on, feed the preacher something different. No, I'm just kidding you. You know what? We have fun together. We have, we, it's a fun time. I like doing anything with my people because it strengthens us no matter how mundane it may be because that's what it's about. We're in this together, and I try to teach you the concepts of ministry just like we have the concepts of life together. We work together as a team to move somebody because down the line we're going to work together as a team to win somebody. I don't know any other way than a leader should be to lead as by example of being, if I want you to be a servant, then I have to have my heart as a servant. It doesn't work any other way. It just does not. And it doesn't take long to see the men and women in our church, and that's true of about just about all of you, that, does not, that, that has a servant's heart that wouldn't do anything for anybody when the time comes up. And that's just the way that it is. And you've got to understand that God will tempt you and try you with what you love. And God didn't tempt Abraham in the sense that he tempted him with evil, because that's what the verse says in James 1.13. It says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man with evil. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. And when lust has conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Then the second time of temptation is from your own lusts. When you are drawn away. You know what that means? It means that your old flesh and your own nature, the one you hang out with and feed, is going to draw you away the thing from God. God will not tempt you with evil, but God will tempt you and try you with the things that you love. Why? Because tribulation is perfect work. Verse 4 of chapter 1. That's why. That's why. God's not going to tempt a man to lust, but God will tempt a man and try a man on the things that he loves. We saw it with Job. We saw it with Paul. We saw it with Abraham. We've seen it with almost every man in the Bible. But your flesh and my flesh will do a good job by itself. And you let your mind dwell on sin, and that's where you will be very shortly. And that's why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2.16 that we have the mind of Christ. And it says in Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And that's why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 5 that you and I are to cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought unto the obedience of Christ. God does not tempt men with evil. Men allow their flesh, women allow their flesh to be drawn out away from God, and then it goes from there. So we see that there's no contradiction. The first great principle sets up the crude crate studies in the Bible of the two types of temptation. And then there's a second concept, and this is found in chapter 1, verse 8. Oh, this is a great one. And it says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Now, that fits to Israel. Right now, as we are speak, Israel is double-minded. 
So it's true of the nation of Israel. They're a long way from God. They're messed up on the things of God and they're in deep sin. But it's also true of you and I. Because the great concept is that no man can serve two masters. The great concept is, is how can two walk together except they be agreed? You see, the Bible, and you're going to learn this in time, the Bible is the owner's manual for the creation that God created. God created you and I. And God created you and I, and He knew that we were going to be problematic. And so God gave us an owner's manual by which we could fix ourselves. In fact, it's an owner's manual that if you uh, run it the right way, you get a long life and long longevity out of it. Anybody knows that if you buy an a appliance that runs on 110 and plug it into 440, things aren't going to go very well. Everybody knows if your gar car takes gas and you put diesel fuel in it, you're not going very far. Everybody knows that if you put, uh, going to wash clothes and you put in a little bit of water and a lot of soap, you ain't going anywhere. Everything has to have the way that it runs and you always get some kind of owner's manual with that appliance or whatever that tells you. I mean, when you buy a car, you get a book that thick that tells you what to do and what not to do. You buy a, 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 a radio, you get a man, you get a telephone, you get a man, it tells you how to do everything. And you don't follow it, it doesn't work very well. Well, let me tell you something. When God made you and I, we are His creation. And the Creator gave you and I an owner's manual called your Bible. And when you do what's right with the Bible, you do well. When you don't do what's right with the Bible, you don't do well. I've said it a thousand times. The Word of God is the final authority in all things in faith and practice. Faith being the spiritual things. Practice being your life as you live it every day. That's why you're going to find all down through the Bible uh, where it talks about singleness of heart. That's why the Bible says all down through the Bible it talks about being one-minded, like-minded. And the key word here is unstable. Unstable. We use the word in the 20th, first century, dysfunctional but it is the word unstable. And because America has rejected the Word of God, because American churches have forsaken the preaching of the Word of God and teaching the Word of God, we find that all three institutions that God designed are unstable and dysfunctional because they're double-minded. The family, the government, and the church. Three institutions that God set up and laid out to operate by His principles. And what's wrong with America? You can go down there, you can listen to Bill O'Reilly, you can listen to anybody you want to listen to, you can get Rush Limbaugh, all those guys, you can, and they all got good things to say. But if you want to make it down to a very simple idea of what's wrong with everything in America, it is the fact that America and everything in it is running by two mindsets. And it produces instability. The family is unstable, the government is unstable, and the church is unstable. And all we are producing in America at the rate of about 50 million an hour is instability. There is nothing stable in this country. And that's why you see every problem that we have. That's why, you know, the flood down in uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, terrible thing. But you know why? Nothing can get right. Nothing, it doesn't matter what you do. Everything has got a bottom line. You know what? Men never learn from history. Everybody, everybody cannot figure out. 
What's wrong with America? Everybody is screaming. Why did it take three days to get all the help down there? Why did it do this? Why did it do that? And nobody can figure it out. I'm going to tell you one story from history that explains every problem we got. I'm a storyteller. A lot of them I make up. It's okay, as long as they serve a purpose. You don't know what's true and what's not. This one's true. This one's true. All right, I'm going to tell you a story. Sit back, put your Bibles down. Here we go, children. Back in the 1800s, the British had colonies everywhere. And in Africa, which was, would be today like uh, uh, Kenya, in those places, they had colonies all through there. In fact, if you go to Africa today, you'll still see the remnants of that culture. That's why they speak English over there. They call it colloquialism, colonial English. And they were all through there. And there was rebellions that were going on. And one of the worst defeats that the British Army ever had was up against the Zulus. Now, the Zulus, whew, bad dudes. They could run all day run a hundred miles and fight a pitched battle. They were incredible. But all they had was spears and little things to hit you in the head with. Now the British Army was the greatest army in the world at this time. Their weapon that they had was a Martini Henry. It was a single shot rifle that fired a, 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 a bullet that would really knock your socks off if it hit you. They had all kind of techniques. When the Zulus would charge them, they would put five ranks and they would go what they call a rolling formation where the front rank would shoot, they'd kneel down, the second rank would shoot, they'd kneel down, the third rank would shoot, they'd kneel down, and the, the fourth rank would shoot, they'd kneel down, fifth rank would shoot, by the time that rank got done, the first rank was loaded again, and you see how it would progression, and they kept up what is called in military terms a sustained rate. See, today we got machine gun, gunships, and everything else, and we just... They didn't have that. So they had to come up with something that went without going. See? So they lined everybody up, put them in a rolling formation, and it kept up a constant state of fire. And those Zulus were coming by the waves, and they would just first front rank, second rank. And then by the time they were done, it would just keep going on and on and on. And they had military warfare down to a sign. Well, I mean, come on. They were fighting people with sticks and spears. But you know what? Military lost one great battle. You know why they lost that great battle? They had them outgunned. They had more firepower. They had more training. They had better fortification. They're behind walls in an old fort. The Zulu are standing up there going, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're standing out in open. And they would charge, and they would charge, and then they'd stand over here, and they would charge. And you know what? And the British should have whipped them. They had everything to whip them, and they got Killed and slaughtered. You know why? Because the British had rules. And one of the rules were when you were a British soldier and you needed ammunition for your rifle, you had to come to one man who was the quartermaster of the ammunition. He had to account for every round to the commanding officer. And so when the Zulus started coming over the wall and they were running out of ammunition, the British soldiers all ran to this quartermaster who was in the army for about probably 35, 40 years. And he did everything by the book. He stood there opening up one case of ammo at a time. 
Instead of letting everybody get what they need and get back to the wall. Oh, no. The bureaucracy stated, you have to sign for every round you take. While the Zulus are coming over the wall and slaughtering the British soldiers, he's the, the stopgap, the bureaucracy, is making them stand in line and sign for the ammunition in spite of the fact that the guys at the end of the line working their way up is getting slaughtered. Now, somebody says, how stupid that could be. Hey, that's exactly what the problem is in our country today. The bureaucracy has filed. We got the most tremendous resources in the world coming through a half-inch funnel. And at the end of that funnel is some old guy that's been around forever saying, oh, no, 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 don't confuse the facts with they're coming over the wall. Sign your name, one round, two, how many rounds would you like? All right, sign here, sign here. What, what happened? Who killed you? Oh, sign. You know what? You can't do it that way. There has to come a time when you've got to throw caution to the wind and you've got to do what you got to do. The bureaucracy in this country is dysfunctional. You know why? It's double-minded. And it's destroyed everything. While people are dying and going to hell, we're worrying about signing here, getting this, who's going to sign this. Well, now we've got to have triplicate forms on these because we can't do this this way. No, no, it has to be countersigned by so-and-so while people are dying. You know what? Churches are doing the same thing. Christians are doing the same thing. Why? Because the structure has broken down and we are now are dysfunctional and unstable. And no man can serve two masters. And I'm telling you, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. That's true of Israel. It is also true of every child of God who thinks foolishly that you can play God in the world, put one foot in the world and one foot in your Bible, and live. You cannot. You are kidding yourself. You are fooling yourself. And you better come to the reality, brother, that you're going to get caught by your own bureaucracy of thinking that you can do both when you can't. Then there's a third great principle, and this is another great one, and this is found in chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, and this is the principle of the perfect law of liberty. I also call this why men hate the Word of God and don't want to serve God. Now, it says in chapter 1, verse 22, it says this, But be ye doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man that beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgeteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he, being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. This is the great answer to why men and women, saved and unsaved, turn from the Bible. You know what it says? It said that Bible's like a natural looking glass. Oh, how I remember the story. As a kid growing up, of Snow, was it Snow White or Cinderella? I don't know. One has that mirror, mirror on the wall, who the fairest of them all. Who was that? Snow White? Okay, I don't know. I just remember the story. And you know what? You look into that thing and it was that, that lady coming there, mirror, mirror of them all, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the loveliest or who, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Who's the fairest of them all? And the mirror entered back and said, not you, you old hag, it's Snow White. Which didn't like it. You know why? Because the Word of God just liked that. You see, and now don't take this wrong, because it's true of all of us. None of you ladies here today, nor none of you men, including myself, look like you looked when you got up this morning. 
Not a, not a complaint. You look wonderful. But you know what? Women are funny. Men are funny. We're all funny. We don't want people to see us in the morning as we really are. So we put, now I'm just speaking from my own household here. We spend hours <laughs> presenting something that really isn't there. <laughs> Honey, you look lovely now, but I saw you this morning when you came out of the bathroom. You had the other wig on. <laughs> you didn't have any makeup on. You look like a refugee from Tuawando someplace. <laughs> now you look lovely. Now I'm just saying here because she's my daughter. I wouldn't say that to you. And Jan, I know you're lovely all the time. But my point is this. You know we don't look. And I don't look like you should see me in the morning. You know why I keep my hair shut? I can wash this with a washcloth. <laughs> I don't have to style it. I don't have to fix it. I love it because when I wake up, it's in style. When I go to bed, it's in style. And the worst night I have when I wake up, my hair at least is in style. <laughs> but you know what? Why? Because we don't like to be seen the way in our natural state. So we work on it. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. My point is this. That's what the Bible does. No matter how much makeup we put on, no matter how much we try to present ourselves as, as beautiful as maybe we truly are, and you just got to help a little enhancement, you know, and all that thing. And I know I'm digging myself a deeper hole every time I go this far, but I'm already there, so I might as well just go all the way to China. But here's the bottom line. That's what the Word of God does. The Word of God shows you, barring everything we put on our life to make us look better, how we really are. And that's why the Bible says man doesn't like it. Man looks into the Word of God. A woman looks into the Word of God. They come on Sunday morning. They hear me lay out the Word of God. They're going to have two reactions to it. They're going to take what I say and they're going to despise it or not like it. Or they're going to take what I say and they're going to say, you know what? He's right. And that's the way it is. And that's the way this and that. And that's the way it's going to be. You know what? The Word of God has that effect. I've never met too many people that said, well, I kind of like God or I kind of don't. I just find people that say, I love Him or I hate Him. I want him in my life. I don't want anything to do with him. I never found anybody quite in the middle. And I know the people that think they're in the middle, but there is no middle. And that's what the Word of God does. It shows you like a looking glass exactly what you really are, your natural state. And the Bible says down here that that's what it says. It says, uh, verse 23, For if it be a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural, natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straight away forgetteth what man was. See, he goes his way versus God's way. Why? He doesn't like what he sees. We like to forget what manner of man we really are. And the Bible, every time we open it, every time we hear a preacher, constantly remind us what our problems are. And when you're not willing to deal with your problems, when you're not willing to admit that you need help, when you're not willing to get to the place in your life where you see yourself as you really are, then pride overwhelms you, pride swells up you, and you like to forget who you are, and you go your way because you really don't like to understand and realize who you are. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, that's your Bible, look at this, and continueth therein. Stay with the book. He, not, he being not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. You know why? Because the first step in really being used of God and building a relationship with God is simply recognizing who he is and who we are. That's what the Word of God does. The Word of God simply shows you and I 
who we really are. And then when we are willing to accept that, then God will change us every day to be more like Him. Great principle. That's why men read the Bible, go to church, never go back. They get offended of what they see. A lot of times they'll blame the preacher. A lot of times they'll blame everybody around them. But the bottom line is deep down inside them, they know the bottom line is they didn't like what they saw when they looked in it. And the first step of getting a relationship with God is understanding that, you know what, none of us look good. I don't care if it's me standing up here. I don't care if it's you sitting out there. I don't care who it is. None of us look good, and you have to become to be comfortable with that and realize that that's why God came down and saved you. That's why He gave you the Bible. That's why He gave you church. That's why He gave you Christian friends. That's why He gave you a husband and a wife, that you can work through those things and become more like Christ every day of your life. Well, chapter 2. Chapter 2 is a very simple one. Verse 8. If ye fulfill the royal law, according to the Scriptures, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself ye do well. This is called the royal law. And the royal law, again, is found over in the book of Galatians, a book that Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6. This here, here it's called the law of Christ. And it says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted." Hear ye, uh, bear ye one another's burden, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. See, that goes along so much with what Paul says in Romans chapter 14 and 15. The royal law is that you love others just like you love yourself. And you're always there to help a brother and sister in Christ. You're to bear their infirm. We've talked about this before. We've talked about that when young Christians come in, they struggle with things. When people first get saved, they don't have it all figured out. They don't know all the things that they're supposed to be doing. And we need to understand that, and we need to bear one another's burdens. Some people have a tough time getting rid of some of the things in the world. Some people don't. Some people do. It doesn't matter. The bottom line is the church uh, should never be dogmatic toward young baby Christians. It should take them, love them, help them, encourage them, help walk them through, show them, allow them to grow into what God wants them to be and, 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 to, and lovingly carry them through. Most pastors, I've said this before, they stand up at the top of the stairs with the poor sinners down at the bottom and they yell and scream and, and everything in the world to get up here where they're at. When the truth of the matter is, every pastor ought to descend those stairs and go down and put his arm around them and walk them up one step at a time. Sometimes it's two steps, three steps forward and two back. It doesn't make any difference. You just continually help people get up that spiritual walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And all that fits into what goes on in Romans when Paul writes to the church. Then in second great concept found in chapter 2, verse 21 through 24. And here's one we need to look at for a moment. And this is where uh, one of the great heresies comes from. And you're going to be confronted with it at some point in your life. He says in verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seeing thou, uh, thou uh, how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Now here's where people, and as I told you, this is where you got to be careful. Because this is totally contradictive to what Paul says. Now here's the problem. And here's what man will teach. Man will say, you know what? you got to work your way to heaven. 
works is vital for you to get saved. Where do they go? They go right here. And they'll say, see, look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son upon the altar? Look at verse 24. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only? Now there's two great verses if a man wants to prove that you've got to work to do your salvation and get your salvation, that's where he goes. Now let me show you how easy it is to deal with this. That's the problem. Let me show you how this thing works. First of all, I already told you that in the breakdown of this book, in the first three chapters, the, the theme of it was faith shown outwardly by your works. But if you don't have that piece of the puzzle, then you're in trouble. Now let me show you the second thing here, how that I know that he's not talking about anybody getting saved. Look at verse 26. Oh, excuse me. Look at verse uh, uh, 21. I'm sorry. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? I had a man pull that on me one time years and years ago. He says, you gotta, once you, he said, you've got to get saved by faith, but you've got to do works. And if you don't do works, then you lose your salvation. And I said, where do you get that from? He said, he said uh, uh, James, chapter, uh, James chapter 2, down through here, and he read verse 21. He said, doesn't the Bible say, was Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son upon the altar? And I said, yeah, that's what it says, but that's not what it means. He said, what do you mean it's not what it means? He said, it says right there, he, he says right there that Abraham was justified by faith when he offered up Isaac. I said, that's not where Abraham got saved. Abraham got saved back in Genesis chapter 15 where God took him out and showed him the stars of heaven. And the Bible clearly says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. That's when he got saved. That's 41 years before he ever offered up Isaac. Abraham was saved 41 years before this event ever took place. You know why? It's not talking about salvation. It's not talking about salvation. You already saw it in chapter 1 where the Bible says the trying of your faith worketh patience and patience has a perfect work. Hey, when you're, what he's saying here is simply this. When you're saved and you're, you're a truly saved person, you're not only going to have an inward faith, that faith is going to be displayed outwardly by what you do. And anybody that knows the whole story of Abraham is the story of his growth and his faith with God. Right growth produces the right faith. The right faith will always produce the right works. Well, when I study Abraham's life, I see him starting out back there in Genesis chapter 12 and 13 and 14. He starts out in Genesis chapter 16 when God comes down and says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation and someday you're going to stop the seed, going to be like the stars of heaven, and I'm going to give you a promised seed. You know what? Abraham couldn't believe him. When he didn't get the seed, he got Hagar from his wife and he had a seed through that, produced all kinds of problems. You know what? His whole life is a picture of your life and my life getting saved and then going through the process. And 40-some years later in Genesis chapter 22, he believed God so much that when God said, put your son on the altar and offer him up to me to sacrifice, Abraham was willing to do it. You know why? He'd grown from point A where he couldn't trust God to point B where he could, and his work showed it. I don't expect you right now as a young Christian to be able to do great things for God. Maybe some of all you can do right now is get to church. Some of you have a tough time with that. And you've been saved a lot longer than some of the other ones. Maybe all you can do right now is just, is just you know, whatever you can do. But in time, that'll change. Because as you grow and as your faith grows, you're going to do more things. 
Some of you maybe can't see yourself preaching in a church someplace. I can. A year ago, two years ago, some of you wouldn't have said you could never preach anywhere. And then I've seen you down at the City Union Mission. You know why? Because your faith has grown and your works grow. Some of you, when you first came to this church and we first started meeting together, you didn't have a clue of what to do with the Bible and people. Now you're working with people at work. You're discipling people here. Why? Because the right process of growth produces the right faith and that always produces the right works. The old concept, faith without works is dead, is built on the aspect that if you're truly saved, as you grow, your works will grow with it. That's what he's saying. He's not talking about anybody getting saved. He's teaching one of the greatest principles in the world. There's a process of spiritual growth in your life that if you get into church, you get into the Bible, you let somebody help you, as you grow spiritually, your faith grows. As your faith grows, your works grow, and you do greater things for God. That's how it works. That's how it works. Chapter 3. Whole chapter is devoted to man's biggest problem, and that's his mouth. I was driving over here this morning, a little church back there on Nolan Road. Some of you might see it coming over. It had a little marquee. It simply said this. Many things are open by mistake, but nothing more than our mouths. What a true statement. He says in chapter 3, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouth, and they obey, and we turn about their whole body, by a little bit in their mouth. Behold, also the ships, which though they be so great, they are driven by fierce winds, yet they are turned about with a very small helm, little rudder, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold how great a manner a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, the world of iniquity, so is the tongue among our members, that it uh, defileth the whole body, yet setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on the fire of hell. For every kind of beast, and of birds, and of serpents, and of things in the sea is tamed, and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Wow, what a great, what a great commentary on human nature. It is so true. I remember last year, out in California, Oregon, one of those places, they lost like 900,000, almost a million, if not a million acres to a forest fire. And I remember interesting that a news broadcast, and they talking about it, and they said that the, that whole million-plus acres, a million, I can't even imagine a million acres, million-plus acres was destroyed by one little cigarette. Somebody just flippantly threw out the car. And boy, I thought to myself, you know what? How many times one thing said in the course of discord among the brethren has had devastating effects on somebody else's life? You know, and it's, a, it's an incredible thing. And, and he, he focuses on this as man's biggest problem. Proverbs eleven thirteen says, A talebearer revealeth secret, but he that is of a faithful spirit concealeth the matter. He prays about it. Proverbs 18, 8, Words of a talebearer are wounds. And they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. The worst wound you can get is a stomach wound. 
And the Bible talks about in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, the six things that God hates and seventh making an abomination. And the seventh thing is the destroying, sowing of discord among God's people. And let me tell you something. That is the number one problem. That is the number one problem, always has been, always will be. That is the number one problem. You know what? And I've looked at this over the years, and I thought to myself, why is this the number one problem? This is probably the easiest problem to stop within anybody. It really is. It is probably the easiest one of all the sins that man does. In a, in a, it is the easiest one to deal with. And yet it is the most rampant and the most destructive. But you know why? Because God's people won't deal with it. You know how you deal with it? When somebody comes to you and starts to tell you something about somebody else that they've got no business telling you about, if you would stop them dead in their tracks right on the spot and nail them scripturally and say, hey, now what? We've got two choices here. We can either go and talk to this person in person or you can shut your mouth and go on your way. I promise you, you shut it down. But you see, we won't do that. We just won't. I, I don't know why we won't, but we won't. We let somebody go on and assassinate somebody else's character. We let somebody go on and say something about somebody else that isn't true or whatever the case. And we just go on with it. And like uh, we never stop that person and never say, hey, look, you know what? You are telling someone who can't really fix your problem. If you got a problem with so-and-so, why are you telling me? I can't fix it. You need to go to Bible says, the B-I-B-L-E, the big book with gold blades and black letters. You need to go tell that person and deal with them. They don't want to. You know why? Because... Because they are the ministers of information. Like the standard joke, lady gospel lady in church came down one time in a revival service and came down to the preacher crying and bawling. She said to the preacher, he, she said, Preacher, I've been so confronted this week. She says, I'm a gossip and I just want to let you know, preacher, I'm sorry. And I'm going to come down there, preacher, to lay my tongue on the altar of God. And preacher said, we need a bigger altar. <clears throat> yeah, need a bigger altar. Terrible, terrible. And of course, as this fits all into the nation of Israel, you'll find all this stuff that's talking about here. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. Luke chapter 12, verse 53. All of this stuff. Now remember now, remember, all this is Israel doctrinally, enduring the tribulation, learning patience. For us, inspirationally, it's going through our own trials and tribulations. Everything we have looked at so far, not only fits to Israel in their time of need as they go through the tribulation, but in our lives, the same things that we face. People talking about you. People, uh, you know, double-minded, double standards. All of the things, they all fit in the parallels. Then chapter 4. And you can say what you want to say and you can do what you want to do, but the bottom line is chapter 4 shows us where the real problem lies, not only with the nation of Israel, but also with us. He says in chapter 4, From whence cometh wars and fighting among you? Come they not hence, even of your own lusts, that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, and that ye may consume it upon your lust. You know what? Every problem you and I have, every problem that Israel has, Every problem that you and I have in our lives today starts with my flesh and your flesh. It just simply does. And of course, you know, the age-old question, and I've seen it. I've seen young Christians, when they got shaved, started to try to do what's right, their old lifestyles just swell back up and try to overcome them. Many times they're met with their old friends, their old ways. 
Many times they get the illusion in their mind, you know, that, uh, uh, that they, can, they, can, they can hang out with them and change their mind and they get swallowed up by it because they're not strong enough themselves. Every problem that you and I experience, we can't blame on anybody but ourselves. Your flesh and my flesh is the most dominant thing you and I are always going to have to deal with. You know why? Because when you and I got saved, your flesh didn't get saved. Your soul got saved. Your soul got sealed and redeemed. And your soul is going to heaven to be with the Lord someday. But your flesh is going back down that grave. And that flesh is always flesh. And that's why you struggle with the things you struggle with. You have two natures. An old nature and a new nature after you're saved. The new nature is saved. It's a new man. It's Christ Jesus inside you wanting to do what's right. The old nature wants to draw you back and pull you in. There ain't anybody in this room that's saved that hasn't experienced that. Everybody in this room, everybody in this room has to feel the tidal pull of the old flesh in your life at some time or the other to go be the way that it used to be. And yet, you're asked many, many times, at least I'm asked many times, how do you overcome the flesh? And I know the standard answers. The Bible says, crucify the flesh. You know, the Bible says, reckon yourself dead. The Bible says, well, you know what? Whatever nature you feed is the one that's going to... And all those things are true. Nowhere in the Bible do you find a format to show you how to deal with your flesh better than James chapter 4. James chapter 4 shows you the way to do it if you want to do it. And I'll give it to you and I'll lay it out for you. And I fully well know in my mind that most of God's people will never do it because that's just the way we are. He says in verse 7, you want to overcome the flesh? You want to get the victory in your life? All right, here's the things you got to do. You can't do one of them. You got to do all of them. There's a progression here. And even if you don't do it, it won't work. All right, he says in verse 7, submit yourselves unto God, therefore unto God, and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts. Here it comes, ye double-minded. You see that thing? Double-minded, double standard. Double-minded man unstable in all his ways. All right, the first thing you do is submit yourself to God. What does that mean? It means there has to come a time in your life, young man. It means, young lady, there has to come a time in your life when you've got to clear off a spot and say, you know what, I'm going to stake my stand right here. If you never come to the place in your life, I remember one time I had a guy that he just couldn't seem to get it together. And I love the kid, nice kid. I don't ever know what happened to him. But I never, you know what, he just, and he, he, just, he just was, he got saved. I really believe he wanted to do what's right, but he just could never have the guts or the courage to make it and get it done the way he should have. And I, and, I, and, I, and I used to encourage him and encourage him, and I'd kick him in the seat of the pants, and I'd just do everything I knew to do. And i never forget one time, he, I, he came to church one Sunday morning, had, he had a black eye, his, his cheek was all swollen, his nose was all, had been busted, you know, and his lip was all swelled up. And I said, man, what happened to you? And he says, well, Brother Bob, he said, you know what, I was going home last night from work, and he said, I pulled up in my drive, street in my driveway, and he said, I got out of my car, and two guys came up, and they tried to rob me. He says, they want to take all my money. And he said, you know what? He said, I, he said, I, and he said one of them hit me. And he says, he said, but it'd be good to know. He said, they didn't get anything from me. He said, I fought them off. He said, I may look bad, but you got to see those guys. And he said, they, I, I, we just got into a knockdown. There was two against one. They beat the tar out of me. But I whipped them both, and they ran off down the street. And he said, they never got a dime of my money. And I said to him, boy, I wish you'd fight that hard for God when the devil tries to come and get you to go out with your old buddies. See? I've watched some of you guys out there in a softball field. 
I watched you guys dive when the ball was 10 feet in front of you and you tried to catch that thing and you had to crack every rib in your back. I've seen you guys run so hard to first base, second base, third base, do everything in the world to win those things. And I thought to myself as I watched it, you know what? If that kid worked as hard at coming away from the devil and the devil's crowd to serve God as he does trying to win a softball game, he wouldn't have any problems in life. See where it's at? That's where it's at. He says, submit. You have to come to a place in your life and it says, okay, this is the spot. I'm not moving from it. I've wasted enough of my life. I've wasted enough of my time. I'm going to drill a hole here and I'm not going to leave until I get this thing. If I got to lose my friends, if I got to lose my girlfriend, if I got to lose my boyfriend, they can go. I am tired of it. I'm going to submit myself to God first and I'm going to fight. That's what you got to do. You don't get that kind of determination, you'll never make it. You'll never make it. Then the second thing is resist the devil. How do you do that? We talked about this Thursday night. You resist the devil by replacing your thought process with the principles of the Word of God that when something comes into your life, instead of thinking of it the old way, you think of it God's way. And the only way you resist the devil is the way Christ did when he came to in Matthew chapter 4 and tried to get him to tempted. Jesus simply said, it is written. End of statement. You've got to begin, once you submit, you've got to begin to resist. And the only way you and I can resist is to get the Word of God in our lives. That means you have to come and you have to get somebody to work with you. Then that's what you do. Then the next thing is draw nigh unto God. What does that mean? Simple. Let me translate it for you. Get with a program. Get with a program. Get with the program. God gave you a church. God gave you a pastor. God gave you people that care. Get with the program. Get the things out of your life that keep you from being what God wants you to be. And you draw nigh. Get where God's at. You can't ever get with God. When you keep going places, God's not there. You gotta submit, you gotta resist, and then you gotta draw nigh to God. You get with a program, and then you cleanse your hands. What does that mean? You get right with God, you stay right with God, you recognize your daily sin and downfall, you keep short accounts with God. And then the last thing, you purify your heart. You get rid of the double standards, you get rid of the double mindedness, and you get on that single concept. That's what you do. That's what you do. That's how you overcome your flesh. You submit, you resist, you draw nigh to God, you cleanse your hands, and you purify your heart. And nobody can do that for you. I can teach you, we can teach you, I can encourage you, admonish you. Nobody can do this for you. Hey, let me tell you something. If you just ain't got the guts down deep inside of you to be a man to take a stand for God in the face of all the world doing with God, I don't know what I can do to help you. You have to just say, I'm going to be God's man. I don't care who laughs at me. I don't care who makes fun of me. I'm going to be God's woman. I'm going to take a stand for him after what he did for me. I don't care what anybody thinks. That's what it takes. And there's men like that out there. There's men like that out there. There's men like that out there. Give me a couple of months with this old boy right here. I want to see somebody come up and say, Yanny, 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 you're a Christian. Yeah. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> Hang in there, buddy. 
God's doing something in your life. Bless your heart. I love you to death. You're our kind of people. God's got something for you. And I'm telling you, those that are kind. But I tell you what, get these wimpy. Give me some men and some women that just in these last days want to clear up a spot and say, let's get it done. That's what we're looking for. And then chapter 5, and this is it, we're done. Chapter 5 is a, the whole chapter. I showed you now, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, all dealing with the tribulation in Israel. They're told to be patient. They're told to endure. We've seen it now in every chapter. Yes, we have saw the parallels, how it fits to us, because the principles line up. But so far in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4, we have seen Israel going through the tribulation, told to be patient, that patience had its perfect work, that the Lord's promises were still there, that you're going to have a lot of adversity, a lot of things, how to deal with it. We've seen all of that stuff. Now we come to chapter 5. Chapter 5 is clearly and plainly the whole chapter, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verses 7 and 8. Now here's where your Thursday nights is going to begin to pay off because we come through this stuff. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receiveth Receive the early and the latter rain. Be there also patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. Draweth nigh. See the context? Coming of the Lord. Look down there in verse 7. Receive the early and the latter rain. There's that former and the latter rain. In fact, when we went through our, our definitive passages on Thursday night for all those months, James chapter 5, verse 7 was a definitive passage on the former and the latter rain. I took you through Joel 2, Job 37, 2 Chronicles 6, 2 Chronicles 7, thousand other places, and I showed you how what this former and the latter rain was. Look at verse 11 and 12. Behold, we count them happy which endure. See that word keep popping up, endure? See that keep? That's, that's Israel in the tribulation. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard the patience of Job. Patience of Job, ye have seen the end. The end, the end of the tribulation of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be nay and your nay be nay, lest you fall into condemnation. Patience of Job. Well, I've told you before, we studied when we came through the book of Job. The whole book of Job is a picture of the tribulation period. The name Job means one persecuted. He's persecuted in the land of love. That's where the Jews are going to be during the uh, tribulation period. I mean, uh, the whole thing. Job's underground being persecuted by the devil for seven days and seven nights, like the Jew for seven years. Uh, Job loses all that he has. The nation of Israel loses all that. He gets back double at the end. So does the nation of Israel. There's 42 chapters in the book of Job. There's 42 months in the great tribulation period. I can't miss it. Then he comes down in verse 12 and he says, talks about swearing not, neither by heaven or earth. You go to Ezekiel chapter 16, Ezekiel 17, 2 Chronicles 36, Isaiah 65, Daniel 9, Daniel 5, you'll find that this is somebody told not to swear an oath to a number. And that number is 666. Just like Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 13. All this stuff is dealing with Israel. Then he says in verse 17, here's the key, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that he might not reign, and it rained not of the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again that the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. You see that thing? That's a picture of that rain at the end of it brings in the second coming of Christ. And all this, all this, we studied this on Thursday night. All this is Isaiah chapter 55, uh, 8 through 13, and on down through there. All this is a picture of the second coming of Christ being likened to a rainstorm. 
where the water comes down, type of the Word of God, and it accomplishes the purpose that God sent it to. And all of these things, all of these things are pictures uh, in the book of James directly to the nation of Israel, struggling through the tribulation period and God telling them to be patient. Now, in your life and my life, and we're going to close, we're going to have our own trials and tribulations. Some of us have already been through them. Some of you that just got saved, you're going to go through them. This is why God gave you a pastor. This is why God gave you men and women sitting around you that love you and care for you. This is why God gave you a church. Because God's program and God's design is together we help each other through the tough times. That's the only thing that's going to get Israel through. You know, without getting off the subject, when Israel gets into the tribulation period, you know what God does? God sends them two of the greatest leaders that they ever had in the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, Revelation chapter 11, come back and lead them. You know why? Because they need leadership, and in that leadership, there's comfort. In that leadership, there's men standing there reaffirming to them in the midst of their trials what, that God is still their God and still loves them. You know why? Because it's so easy in the midst of our trials, financially, family-wise, whatever we have to go through, it is so easy to get short-sighted with all that's around us. And that's why God decided to put in your life somebody, people, a church that cares to help you sort it all out. That's what we're here for today. Every head bowed and every eye closed. We're going to be finished here in just a second. Let me just say this to you. I don't know where you're at today in your own personal relationship with the Lord. I don't know. I don't know. I don't need to know. You know. And you know right now, as you're sitting here, you know that after all we've talked about today, and I hope now you clearly see the parallels between the struggles of Israel going through what they have to go through and our struggles of what we have to go through, that the answer to both is the same. It's the Word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you're here sitting here this morning and you're not a Christian. And I define that as being a Christian or not being a Christian by simply this. If you were to die right now, keel over in your chair, drop dead as you got up to leave this building, where would you spend eternity? If the answer in your heart is in heaven and you don't know for sure then this message was exactly for you because God wants you to be saved. He says, These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life. God died for you and today He wants you to leave here knowing for sure that your sins have been forgiven. That's what it's all about. I'm going to pray in just a moment and then we're going to be dismissed. But let me ask you this. Is there somebody here this morning that maybe deep down in your heart you don't know for sure if you died right now that you'd go to heaven? And with every head bowed and every eye closed and nobody looking around, would you allow me to pray for you? Would you by your uplifted hand say, Bob, I am not sure that if I died right now that I'd go to heaven. Here's my hand. Would you please pray for me? I won't embarrass you. If anything else is done, it's because you wanted to. Our heads are bowed. I want to pray for you. Never refuse prayer. Here's my hand, Bob. I'm not sure. Honest to God, I don't know, Bob, for sure. I just don't know for sure if I died today for sure that I'd go to heaven. Here's my hand. Anybody? I'm just going to wait a moment. Just going to wait a moment. Here's my hand. Pray for me. I'm not sure. I'm not sure.